you're visiting with us, we are in a study of King Solomon and the reign of King Solomon. Who said these words? <clears throat> but Solomon built him a house, howbeit the Most High dwelleth not in houses made with hands, as saith the prophet. The heaven is my throne, and the earth the footstool of my feet. What manner of house will you build me, saith the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? Who stated those words? Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, in his defense of the gospel, Acts chapter 7, Stephen is defending the gospel, and he brings up Solomon. And as we've stated before, this really doesn't give us a full picture of what it means to study Solomon. So we go back, we have to go back to the Old Testament to understand what that means and what it means to us. Why would a New Testament gospel preacher preach about Solomon? So we go back and we need to spend our time as we're doing to understand the kingdom of Solomon, understand his, his reign and the magnitude of his kingdom and the magnitude of the, and the splendor of that great temple that he built during that time and see how it relates to us. All right, let's just uh, review our last two weeks we've studied the first first chronicles 22 28 29 we talked about the the quantity of the materials that were used that were gathered together by David for Solomon to use in building the temple the preparations for that temple their magnitude their splendor the cost of that last week we looked at the subject of cleaning house chapter 1 and chapter 2 there are some leftover things that Solomon's going to have to deal with these need to be removed, gotten out of the way, so we can get on about the business of the kingdom, business of the building of the temple. And so we, get, we take care of those people in chapters 1 and 2, and then chapter 3 tonight. God appears to Solomon. If you will turn to 1 Kings chapter 3, let's begin by reading the first three verses of that chapter. 1 Kings chapter 3. Beginning of verse 1, Solomon made affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had made an end of building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall of Jerusalem round about. Only the people sacrificed in the high places because there was no house built for the name of the Lord until those days. And Solomon loved the Lord walking in the statutes of David his father. Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. So as God appears in this chapter, God appears to Solomon. Before we get there, a statement is made here by the writer in these first three verses. I will call that the State of the Union. Usually in January, we have a, what's called a State of the Union, a kind of a summary of what's going on or what's being scheduled to take place in the, in the country. We have kind of a State of the Union given to us here in these first three verses. And I think it's a statement. The writer wants us to know something. This really doesn't have anything to do with God appearing to Solomon as of yet. But as we see, I want to bring out three points here in these first three verses. Solomon's affinity with Pharaoh. And I'll separate this next one as Solomon's marriage to Pharaoh's daughter. And then on top of that, we have people sacrificing at the high places. Now let's look at, at these one at a time. Verse 1 talks about 
Solomon's affinity with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, what should bring a red flag about that particular statement? God said not to marry foreign women. God said not to marry foreign women. If you will, go back in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 7. Let's dig a little deeper here into this and see what's below the surface of this particular text. Deuteronomy chapter 17, God, through Moses, gave a commandment regarding going back to Egypt. Actually, we'll begin Deuteronomy 17, verse 14. I want to spend just a moment of time here to understand because we, when we read a text like this, like we just read, let's dig a little deeper to see what's behind it. At this point in time, the people did not have a king over them, but God said through Moses, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, when you do set up a king over you, here are the stipulations. Here are the things that I want to, him to abide by. Verse 14, the latter part, he says, I will, you'll say, I'll set a king over me. I want to be like the nations round about me. Remember that statement they made in 1 Samuel chapter 8? Going down to verse 16 here, he says, Only he shall not multiply horses, horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to the end that he may multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, you shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself that his heart turned not away. Neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. So what does God think about his kings going back to Egypt? Good or bad? Bad. This is almost like a prophecy here, isn't it, of the kingdom of Solomon himself. If you didn't know any better, you read these verses here in Deuteronomy, you would think, well, that's got Solomon written all over it. And it does, really. So don't go back to Egypt here, it said. You'll go back there and you'll make alliances with them. You'll you want to go back there and get their horses. They had the best horses anybody raised, anybody ever bred. Great horses for use in warfare particularly. You'll multiply these horses to yourself and you'll multiply wives to yourself and silver and gold. So now let's go back to 1 Kings chapter 3. What is wrong with an association with Egypt? Don't we want to maintain friendliness with our nations round about us? God said, no, not this nation. <laughs> Once you were delivered out of this nation, turn, turn away, don't go back. Don't even have associations with them such as this because that will draw you in to dependence upon Egypt. Now we go back to 1 Kings 3. He also brought uh, Pharaoh's daughter. Not only did he have an affinity with Pharaoh, he brought Pharaoh's daughter with him, married to her as well. And then we'll talk more about marriages to foreign women in the coming weeks. We won't touch on that point here. We'll have plenty to say about that in the next uh, few weeks. Now, let's go look at verse 2 and verse 3 as well. Only the people sacrificed in the high places. He seems to 
make a point of this. And also in the last part of verse 3, he says, Only he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Is there anything wrong with that? Apparently? Yeah, Are the high places, going forward looking at the prophets, are the high places ever mentioned in a good way? It's what the anonymous people did. They were told, remove those high places, the idols that were there, not to worship there, because if they, even if they worshiped there, what would be the temptation? Worship To blend... And that's a lot of times what happened. They blended worship to God with idolatrous practices, and there's this blending going on. Uh, now let's dig a little bit deeper here, and let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and see a little bit more about what God has to say about high places. Deuteronomy chapter 12. We're going to begin here at verse 4. Deuteronomy 12, verse 4. You shall not do, he's talking about high places at this point in the chapter. Verse 4, he says, You shall not do so unto the Lord your God, but unto the place which the Lord your God shall choose out of your tribes to put his name there, even unto its habitation, shall you seek, and thither thou shalt come. You shall bring your sacrifices and offerings and all these things to, uh, to God there. Actually, I should have gone back and read uh, verse 2. You shall surely destroy all the places, verse 2, where the nations that you shall dispossess serve their gods upon the high mountains, upon the hills, under, under every green tree. You shall break these down, all, burn these idols, hew them down. And the last part of verse 3, you shall destroy their name out of that place. You shall not do so unto the Lord your God. God made it very plain about these high places. There was their tendency to get up into a high mountain, a high place, and feel better about their worship. They felt maybe closer to their gods, whatever they may be, to worship them. So they did it at a high place. And God says, tear those down. Don't worship there. Don't have this association with these high places. And again, as we've said, the prophets were always, the latter prophets were always talking about the idols and the high places. Now as we go back to 1 Kings chapter 3, and we look at high places, and God's commandment that they stay away from these places, we might look at their, these and, and go, well, you know, after all, or maybe if we're an Israelite, I might say, well, what's wrong with it? If, after all, we're worshiping God, but what's wrong with doing it in the high place? We're worshiping God, but we're doing it in the high place. What's wrong with that? God said not to. God said don't do it. God in his wisdom knew that there was a problem with that and that culture had a tendency to allow idolatry to creep in and that's definitely what happened as we look forward to their history. 
Now, what about you and I today? Are there things that we could do? Could, could we worship God? But maybe do something similar to that? Could we, we're worshiping God, but not in the way that God wants us to? Or how God wants us to? Yeah. We, could, we might partake of the Lord's Supper. And we feel like we're worshiping God, but we're not doing it in the right way, the way God commanded. Then it's of no avail. It does us no good, does it? And there are certainly many things that we could do today that uh, we could say, well, sit back and say, well, we're worshiping God. But are we worshiping God by His prescribed way? That's the question. And that's the question here. And I think what the writer of 1 Kings wants us to see, and he points out here by making this statement before we go on, there's a problem here. We're not going to talk about it a lot here, but later on, keep this in the back of your mind. This will come up, and it, it indeed does. Okay, any thoughts on those first three verses there? Okay, let's continue. Verse 4, the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. A thousand burnt offerings did Solomon offer upon that altar. We don't know a lot about Gibeon. The tabernacle was not always in Jerusalem. Many years it was in Shiloh, and it moved around different places. But apparently in Gibeon here is where the tabernacle is. And Solomon comes with a thousand burnt offerings. That's a great sacrifice, isn't it? Great statement is made about Solomon here, willing to offer a thousand burnt offerings. Upon that altar, in Gibeon, verse 5, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give thee. It's kind of open-ended, isn't it? Ask what I shall give thee. Now let's just pause there just a minute and uh, let's ask ourselves a question. This is just between you and God. What if God were to come to you and say, what shall I give thee? What would you say? What would your answer be without anyone else having to know? Would it be a greater share of possessions? Would it be a bigger house, better house? Would it be some type of recognition, popularity? Would it be my enemies? Maybe I wish they were pushed out of my life in some way. What about a long life? If God said, what shall I give thee? Would you say, oh, I've like a long life. What would be your answer? May I also suggest a little bit further that perhaps whatever our mind dwells upon, that would be probably what we ask for in our quiet moments between us and God. Those things that my mind dwells upon most often are probably the things that I would ask God for if I had a quiet moment and God asked me this question.
what does Solomon ask for? An understanding heart, heart of wisdom. All right, let's begin there, verse 6. Solomon said, between uh, verse 6, verse 6, 7, and 8, is kind of a praise to God, uh, an understanding of Solomon that who he is, where he is, in the position that he is in. He praises God, and then he comes to a humble request. So let's begin at verse 6. Solomon said, Thou hast shown mercy to thy servant David, my father, great loving kindness, according as he walked before thee in truth and in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart with thee. And thou hast kept for him this great loving kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. You are to be greatly praised, Father. And now, verse 7, O Lord, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David, my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or come in. And thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen, a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Verse 4 through 15, God appears to Solomon. And says, what shall I give thee? Solomon's answer is what? Most of your verses have something similar to an understanding of heart, I believe. To judge your people. Say an understanding heart to judge your people. An understanding heart to judge these people. Usually we, we answer this question by saying, Solomon asked for wisdom, and he did. But I think if we look into this phrase a little bit further, it seems that Solomon is asking for an ability to be able to understand situations that might come to him that he needs to discern right and wrong, justice and righteousness. And I'm not saying that it's not wisdom, it is, but there's a little bit more specific nuance here in this phrase, understanding heart, that he might be able to determine exactly what to do in a predicament. We're going to see one of those predicaments at the end of this chapter. And all too often, you know, it's hard for us to understand the weight of burden that a person would feel leading millions of people. And he is the king. He is the one to determine situations that, that have to be decided. And probably already at this point in his reign, he's felt the pressure, that burden, to decide some very difficult things. God, give me, verse 9, an understanding heart to judge thy people that I might discern between good and evil. Verse 9, who is, who is able to judge this thy great people? We see a lot of humility. There. We read between the lines, there's a lot of humility there in that verse, isn't there? We see a lot of humility in Solomon. He, he's recognizing, that's one of the great things about seeing a humble leader is recognizing how huge and how what the magnitude of the job that's set before him. It's one of the first things a, a leader needs is that recognition. And Solomon recognizes that. Give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people. 
You know, if we think about our application, the book of James, James 1, verse 5, I believe it is, talks about if any of you asks or, or is lacking in wisdom, what do we do? If we lack wisdom, we ask of God. And how does he give? In those following verses, how does he give? Liberally. Liberally. He doesn't upbraid us when we ask for those things. He's give, giving it to us liberally. And isn't wisdom such a great attribute to have for us, for us to ask for? It's a be a great quality for us to, to ask for. Wisdom, to be able to make the decisions, the difficult decisions that we are faced with, no matter how insignificant they may seem to other people, it may be a decision about your family, or about your child, or about a, a neighbor, or someone, a, a brother. It could be anybody. But we, like Solomon, we may not be leading a, a huge country, a nation, but we can do well to follow his example and seek and ask for wisdom that we might be able to discern good and evil and maybe at times even just discern the best path. Maybe not necessarily what's good or evil, but what is the best path for me to take. Now, as we continue, verse 10, how did this uh, seem to God? What did God say about this? Very pleased. Now, don't you think he's pleased with us if we come to God and we ask for wisdom as well? So God says in verse 11, because you have not asked, or because you've asked this thing and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither have you asked for riches for yourself, nor asked for the life of your enemies, but have asked for thyself understanding to discern justice. Behold, I have done according to thy word, and lo, I have given thee a wise and understanding heart, so that there hath been none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any arise like unto thee. So he gives him wisdom like none other. In addition, he gives him what? Riches and honor. He already has that, doesn't he? But I would take that to be that he has riches and honor to such a degree that it will be immeasurable, none like him before or after. Verse 13, I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. Is that it? You got wisdom? The type of wisdom that God's going to grant and, and riches and honor, is that it? Yeah. One more thing. Keep my commandments, you will have length of days. That's in addition to 
what we've seen here. And actually, you think about it, in one sense, the Israelites themselves have been given that promise. You go into the land, you obey, and you will, your days will be lengthened. They have been given that promise as well. But God has given Solomon a very specific uh, gift here, verse 14, if thou wilt walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as thy father David did walk. That's a very, a very, very big shoes to fill. Then I will lengthen thy days. So we have Solomon receiving an understanding heart, a heart of wisdom, riches and honor, and also long life. If you walk in my ways. Any thoughts up to this point? Any comments? Yes. Back in Deuteronomy 17 where we looked earlier, you notice some things God told the king not to do. One of them was to multiply gold and silver to himself. And yet here, God said he's going to give him riches. What that tells me, it's not the riches that's the problem. It's the seeking after it is the problem. Mm -hmm. It's the heart. The heart that, uh, as 1 Timothy 6 tells us, seek not to be rich. Weary not thyself to be rich. I think that's one of the Proverbs says that, doesn't it? Weary not thyself to be rich. And uh, seek not for riches. Yes. The uh, long life and riches are also um, promised to us, just maybe not here. Mm -hmm. uh, it's another consideration is we, we do have riches and we have long life, longer than we can imagine. Mm -hmm. Very good. Anything else? Let's, let's consider uh, one over here for a moment. Why is God giving him... And this is part of our big picture in, in this study of Solomon. Why is God giving him all this? He's got riches and honor and wisdom beyond measure. Why is God giving him all this? Think about that just a minute while we listen to this comment. Well, if you think about the, uh, what God has said and Christ has said uh, and the Holy Spirit has said about the Christian, uh, we too are kings. And God has given us wisdom through his word here. He's given us riches and glory uh, because one day we'll be like him and we strive to be like him and we, we, we relish the riches of his glory uh, and being honored as his child. But as uh, my brother said there, <clears throat> we've also been promised eternal life if... So we have the same promise and the same gifts that Solomon received back then today. We began the first two weeks with the quote from Matthew 12 and Matthew 6. Matthew 12 was uh, a greater than Solomon is here. And that was Jesus. Jesus was talking about himself. Matthew 6, we talked about the point where Solomon was brought up in comparison to the lilies of the field. Are the lilies less than Solomon in that chapter? No, they're greater than Solomon. And we look at a passage like this and, and the next passages and the next chapters. Solomon's 
magnificent wealth and power and wisdom. And even the lilies of the field are greater than that. Jesus is telling us, you remember, who is it that's even greater than, who does God care for even more than the lilies of the field? You and I. So that's the lesson, isn't it? As great as all these things are, the wisdom, the riches, and the honor, and we look at all these things, in the kingdom of Christ, we serve a better king than Solomon. We serve, we're in a better temple than that which Solomon built. Then we begin to understand why the New Testament uses that comparison. We go back and we can understand it's, it's just like a parable going from that which we know to that which we don't understand quite exactly. We're, we're going from Solomon physical kingdom, we can understand that, and now we look, compare that to spiritual de definitions, and we begin to understand the depth of the spiritual king and the kingdom that, that we are a part of. And besides that, you think about the, all of the wealth, of the wisdom of the wealth that Solomon had, and he wrote wrote it all down for us to understand if a man pursues that to the nth degree, what is it? All is vanity. That's an entirely separate application from what we said earlier, but, but there's also that. Has anybody ever been able to have everything a man could want? Well, Solomon came as close to anybody that you could ever imagine. And he tried everything that you could ever imagine. So if you're, unless, you're, if, unless you are tempted to go that way, we have the pattern of Solomon to don't go that way. Solomon tells us himself by his own words. Any other comments before we get into the next section? All right, now, the, uh, Solomon has wisdom, riches and honor, length of days, if you obey. And now the wisdom of Solomon is going to put, be put on display here for us to understand exactly how wise that he was. Verse 16, there came two women that were harlots unto the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O my Lord, I and this woman dwell in one house. I was delivered of a child with her in the house. And it came to pass the third day after I was delivered that she was delivered also. And we were together. There was no stranger there with us in the house, save we two in the house. And keep that in your mind, verse 18, because when they have this dispute, there are no two or three witnesses to go to court with them. Verse 19, this woman's child died in the night because she lay upon it. She arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while thy handmaid slept and laid it in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And I rose, and as any mother would, she recognized there's a problem. She hasn't had this child very long, but what does she 
no, this is not my child. This is not my child. It doesn't take a mother very long to figure out who her child is and who it's not. Verse 21, I arose in the morning, gave my child suck, but it was dead. And when I looked at it in the morning, behold, it was not my son whom I bore. The other woman said, no, but the living son is mine. The dead son is yours. So we've got a dispute here in verse 22. Now, this is a test for the wisdom of Solomon. It's a test for you and I to see, and it's displayed here for us to understand the, the greatness of Solomon's wisdom. How great was it? Well, we can see here in this chapter how great it was. In determining situations that are, where you have a dispute here with two people, and as we said earlier, we don't have the luxury of having two or three witnesses here, do we? That's a problem. It was much easier to determine a case when there were two or three witnesses there alongside the dispute to determine the dispute. Remember that law in the Old Testament? We even use that today in the courts. We use that, that law, that, that precedent. So we have a problem here. We don't have two or three witnesses to come in. So that's to me, what makes it even more, uh, we understand Solomon's wisdom here. He doesn't have that ability to rely on two or three witnesses here to listen to their words or listen to lawyers uh, and see what they have to say. So they go before Solomon, verse 23. Then said the king, the one saith, this is my son that liveth, and thy son is dead. And the other said, nay, but thy son is the dead one, and my son is the living one. Seems to me that the actual honest and the woman that has the living son is the one that, that's taking the lead here in this narrative. Verse 24, the king said, fetch me a sword. And they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, divide the child in two. That seems quite harsh. And it? It always, whenever we read this passage, it seems like such a, an extreme answer. Solomon said, divide the child in half. And who in their right mind would divide the child in half? How did the real mother react upon this statement, upon this directive to divide the child in half? How did the real mother react? Mm-hmm. She said, do not stop. Why would she say that? Couldn't we just divide the child and both would have equal parts? Imagine the look on the real mother's face when Solomon said that. That would probably, I would imagine if I was there, that's probably what would be the giveaway, the reaction on the mother's face. When Solomon said, divide the child, you can imagine just the look on her face would be horrified. And at that point, Solomon probably knew who the real mother was. But he especially knew when she said, don't do that. As if to say, I'd rather my child continue to live than to have 
half of my child. That's, that's nonsense. Verse 26, then spake the woman whose the, child, whose the living child was unto the king, for her heart yearned over her son. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child. I'd rather her have it. Don't slay the child. What a statement. And really what we can see who the real mother is. It's quite obvious, isn't it? She doesn't want any harm to come to this child. Verse 27, then the king said, what? He knows, doesn't he? Give it to her. You mothers can probably feel this pain that uh, set in with the real mother even more than us men can. Divide the child. No. I'd rather her have the child. And then, after this is all said and done, it's exposed who the real mother is. What gets out until all Israel, all Israel hears about this case. What, what happens? What happens to all of Israel after this particular case comes out? Yeah. All Israel hears, and they fear. Verse 28, all Israel heard the judgment which the king had judged, and that which the king, uh, and they feared the king, for they, get this, what did they see in this particular court decision? They saw the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. I want you to go back to 1 Samuel chapter, uh, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 8. This reminds me of a passage that's stated about David. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15. What attributes are given to David here in verse 15 I find very, very interesting. Looking at the kingdom of David, and he's making a statement here as we get to First Samuel or Second Samuel eight, verse fifteen. David reigned over all Israel, and David executed justice and righteousness unto all his people. If you ever want to do a, an interesting word study, take those two words, justice and righteousness, which you'll find in American Standard and New American Standard, and how many times they're coupled together in the Bible, and particularly in the Old Testament. God demands his people execute justice and righteousness, not just leaders, but we find it in the leaders here. David was that type of man. Solomon, we're beginning to see, is that type of man at this point. So he's executing justice and righteousness. And many times the prophets will pair those two words together. God demands justice and righteousness. If you ever want to do an interesting study, that makes quite an interesting study. And it comes up more times than you can ever imagine in the Bible, those two coupled together. So we go back to uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. 
Here, I think, is one of the great points that we're to understand, verse 28. They saw the wisdom of God in this particular decision. They saw the wisdom of God displayed through Solomon. It was in him to do justice. And isn't that what he asked for? Now, I want to pause here and go back to something that I skipped over earlier in the chapter and thought maybe we would have time to just talk about this just a moment. Verse 15. I want to go back to verse 15 because as Solomon has requested wisdom and then God gives him riches and honor and long life if he obeys, verse 15 says, Solomon awoke from this dream. Behold, it was a dream, and he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and offered peace offerings and made a feast to all his servants. I bring this up, and, and this is one of those little nuggets perhaps that uh, I find interesting, because where was it that he went to initially to offer burnt offerings and peace offerings? The high place where in what city? In Gibeon. <clears throat> now we find Solomon, verse 15, he awoke, it was a dream, he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings. I thought you had to do that in Gibeon. Well, <clears throat> I'm going to do a little speculation here that I think what we're seeing here is perhaps Solomon had been corrected on where he should offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. Uh, I'm not going to be dogmatic on that necessarily, but I do find it interesting that uh, he awoke, and then when he comes to Jerusalem, he offers his offerings there. Why didn't he offer those previous offerings in Jerusalem? Why did he go to Gideon? All these are things that, that the... The writer here, I think, puts in there for you and I to take notice of, to see what has taken place here, and not just to read over it and gloss over it and, and just continue going on. Any thoughts on this or any other parts of the chapter? Yes. I think your point on verse 15 is really, really good. This, this verse is not as exciting as the story we just talked about, which reads like this legal drama of the women and the child, and it's Solomon's using perception and awareness and logic. And, but here we see a man, has he's woken up, this newly wise man, and now he doesn't go seek God where he thinks God should be, where it makes sense for him to be using, I think, the discernment and the understanding that God has given him he goes to where God has said he is at the ark, and he offers sacrifices there now. This is just as a good example of that godly wisdom that he's been given as the story of the women we've talked about, but it presents in a bit of a subtle way. It's not as amazing to us, but it, it's as powerful, if not more so, I think. Mm -hmm. we, we spoke uh, in the last week or two about God making a statement on the threshing floor of Ornan and how he had made the statement that, and David understood that. David understood that this is where God wants his house to be, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion. And David understood that. And so we've got a problem here with the tabernacle being in Gibeon, just about seven miles away. 
It's close to Jerusalem, but it's not quite there. The tabernacle and the ark need to be brought together. We understand that's God's ideal. He wants it that way. So we, we, we have a problem here. We have several problems here that uh, hopefully are going to get squared away and worked out as soon as possible. But uh, any other thoughts before we close here? Am I misunderstanding something? But why is he able to offer anything at all in this situation? It, it must be very, very different than what Saul did. And I, I don't quite understand that. I don't quite understand that either. But, oh. <laughs> uh, I guess God has not come down and, and uh, just shows his pleasure every time somebody offers a sacrifice. I, I don't understand. But all I can say is I think God wants the ark and the tabernacle together. And until we get to that point, it's not as it should be. Uh, maybe there's some points that God is overlooking like he does over other things. Two things I'd like to throw in the niche. That is, number one, God said he'd given him a new heart. A heart that he'd asked for understanding and wisdom. God changed his heart. But the offerings here are not mentioned as being incense. There's a peace offering and his offerings. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. Appreciate your comments and participation.